and welcome to Rising. We have a stupendous show for you today now that Brianna, the stupendous Brianna, is back with us. Nice to see you again. It's good to see you. I'm sorry to have abandoned you. The only competition for your presence here on a Monday morning is illness. I succumbed, but I'm feeling much better today and happy to be back. Well, we are so glad that you're feeling better. And what are we talking about today? Well, Robbie, there is more bad news for Biden. A new Monmouth University poll showed the president's approval rating at a record low, just 34% saying they approve of his performance in the White House. 61% of respondents said they disapproved of Biden's job performance. This drop in approval is buoyed by declines in support from Democrats and independents. And voters also give POTUS poor uh, marks on several key policy issues, namely inflation and immigration, with just over two in three disapproving of the president's performance on immigration at 69 percent and inflation at 68 percent. Watch as a Democratic pollster tells Jim Acosta to get out of the bubble as the CNN host cannot fathom why Americans are still grumpy over high prices. question I have, though, is is Inflation is cooling. I mean, if you look at gas prices, they're going down. They're around three bucks a gallon in the in the Washington D.C. area, Maryland, and Virginia. I suspect it uh, fluctuates depending on where you are around the country, but generally coming down. People aren't feeling that enough just yet. It's a bubble. It? Yeah, it's a bubble. <laughs> People look. What I what I have discovered in doing my polling in Europe, in the U.K., and here is <clears throat> what matters is how many months people have been struggling to deal with inflation. And each month they get madder and madder about it, as long as their, their wages are trailing prices. And they're, they're grumpy still, right now. They're still three, look, <laughs> got out of the bubble. Yeah. <laughs> they are three, it's 3% higher than it was yeah. uh, when Biden came in. <clears throat> in, the last, in the last six months, uh, there's been a decline in disposable income. So the, the context is you have to, you have to start there. Inflation is like 30 points higher than the next problem. And you can't, you know, what the president currently doing is his tweets always start with, we're making progress, and then he mentions prices. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> if you look at it, ads aimed at black voters, it's mainly trying to convince them they're doing a good job. But that's not where they are. They are, not, they are losing ground every month and anger about it. But then you have to, you have to stop. You have to say, what's the main problem? How do you, you know, how do you deal with the first problem, which is inflation and the cost of living? There's also this reporting from The Washington Post. Quote, Biden delivered some stern words for the small group assembled. His poll numbers were unacceptably low, and he wanted to know what his team and his campaign were doing about it. He complained that his economic message had done little to move the ball, even as the economy was growing and unemployment falling, according to people familiar with his comments, who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss a private conversation. End quote. So Team Biden, or Biden himself at least, knows that something is wrong, that his message is not getting through, or people are hearing it and just disagreeing and just not satisfied that the situation has rebounded sufficiently since, really, since the, pan the pandemic. Yeah, and this debate about how entitled people should be to feel bad about the economy or their personal economic status in the world right now has been 
boiling over on the broad left. So liberals and leftists have been at odds because there are a lot of liberals who see the complaints that a lot of leftists have been raising for years now about economic precarity, about how working people are getting a smaller and smaller piece of the pie. And they're saying, now is not the time to bring this up. Biden is on the edge. Suck it up. You're, you're delusional. They point to these kind of um, broad macroeconomic trends. Inflation is down. They say gas prices are down. They say, why are you still complaining? But it's obvious why people are still complaining if you look at the metrics that normal people use to decide how, whether or not things are too expensive. Home prices have grown twice as fast as income since the year 2000. We all know that the millennial generation is the first to do worse off than its parents. We haven't had a raise in the minimum wage since 2009, which is the single longest period of time without a minimum, federal minimum wage raise since the invention of the federal minimum wage in the 1930s. This is where we are as a country at the same time that these pundits get on TV and say, there's nothing to see here, there's no problem. And you heard him specifically point to black voters. All right, well, 33% of black men are now saying they're interested in Donald Trump. Mara Gay wrote a piece for the New York Times uh, uh, in the last couple of days where she went down to Georgia, a key state for Joe Biden, and asked black voters there how they're feeling. You know, are they making up the idea that they're actually economically precarious? She went into one of these famous barbershop interview style formats mm -hmm. and asked one guy, and he says, look, quote, um, bad as things were, people say they felt money was circulating with Trump in office. Those stimulus checks, as one guy said. Now there is no money circulating. Prices are up. Cost of food is up. She goes on to write, throughout the region, opportunities for jobs are extremely limited. Many voters told me they are forced to make a choice, working menial jobs for local businesses owned by a handful of white Republican families, fast food, or Walmart. Given the grinding poverty around them, some voters here also said the recent headlines about the United States sending billions to Israel to bomb Gaza are also hard to swallow wallow. Quote, I think he should stay out of other people's business and focus more on problems at home, said one 33-year-old forklift operator in Georgia. Yeah, that, uh, that sentiment does not surprise me at all. It's the perception that our government, and really it's a bipartisan problem, cares about every other country more than the American voters and the American taxpayers. It's a long-running, uh, accurate perception. It, it's hard not to come to that conclusion when wherever there's a crisis, there is the American dollars um, paying to defend and protect people abroad. So that's not surprising at all. Um, yeah, Donald Trump now currently polling better with young voters yep. than Joe Biden. Young voters, so fed up. Um, obviously, part of it has to do with the Israel policy, um, though whether Trump would have a different Israel policy is kind of impossible right. to tell. But Trump does speak somehow, even, even with his uh, less, I, I think, um, thought-out foreign policy or kind of you know, moves from one consensus to another, at some points attacking interventionism, but then also picking, like, John Bolton to be his security, national security advisor. Um, I, I think there is a, a belief, maybe it's just a hope, that Trump cares more about America first, about the American worker, than Joe Biden's policies have evinced that he does. Yeah. And to be clear, a lot of these young voters and black voters, they're not saying, I prefer Trump. No. And they get into that early in another place in the article. They're just not going to vote. But they don't want to vote for Joe Biden. And people are screaming, look, don't be mad. You see some of these pundits, the mainstream media pundit types, looking at these clips, looking at these interviews of young people and others saying that they're dissatisfied with Joe Biden. And they're huffing, and they're rolling their eyes, and they're saying, get a grip. What's the alternative? 
For over a year out from the election, the Democratic Party has said there will be no primary. We're going to ignore polls that say 70 percent of our own Democratic base doesn't want Joe Biden to be the nominee. They don't want Donald Trump to be the nominee either. But the Democratic Party only has control over one of those. And they are saying, you're going to take Biden and you're going to like it. And at the same time, the, the pundits that we uh, watched in the clip are saying, well, Biden has to do a better job of selling it. Well, let's look at the job he actually has to do. He has been telling the American people that the reason he didn't fulfill any number of campaign promises, whether it was raising the, 15, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, whether it was canceling student debt, um, whether it was the fuller Build Back Better package, they say, well, it wasn't our fault. We didn't have the votes. You came into office with a trifecta, a narrow trifecta, but a trifecta nonetheless. And you did not use your leverage to get Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema on board, even though now you're using your political leverage to go around Congress to ensure that Israel gets aid money without a congressional vote. And at the same time, you cannot say, well, it was the Supreme Court that ended uh, the Supreme uh, the um, student debt. Uh, policy when it was your choice to turn on student loan payments less than a year before your election day, or just a little over a year before your election date, when Donald Trump was the guy who used his executive authority to turn him off. Even if you couldn't get the policy through the courts in time, you absolutely did not have to choose to negotiate turning on those student debt payments as part of one of the, I think it was a debt ceiling negotiation a few months ago at the, at the end of the summer. So these are all choices that he has to stand by. And he has to articulate to the American people why he was willing to fight so hard to send tax dollars overseas, but hasn't been willing to fight for people at home that are experiencing economic precarity. And the reason he isn't being able to make that pitch well is because it's simply not a good pitch. And if they just had an actual primary and actual debates and he, you know, and he still wins, okay then, he won the process. But it's like the Democratic Party is saying, no, you will take him and you will you will be happy with that. Right. You will live with this. Right. Um, which is remarkably similar to how 2016 went down. Yeah. How 2016 and, went and down. And by the way, I also think that if there were debates, even if he blew the rest of the competition out of the water, it would be an opportunity for people to be reminded about what the Democratic Party affirmative agenda is. Right now, we're seeing Republicans get out there and make the case for what they believe in. Democrats don't have that same opportunity because they're simply not having a primary. Mm. We'll have more rising right after this. We've got some updates from the Red Sea in response to Houthi attacks on commercial shipping. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin announced yesterday Operation Prosperity Guardian, which brings together multiple countries, including the U.K., Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway, Seychelles, and Spain, to jointly address security challenges in the Southern Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. Let's watch. With the lifeblood of the rules-based international order, is actually seawater. All countries have the right to move freely and lawfully in international waters. But that foundational global right is under new threat today from the totally unacceptable attacks on merchant vessels by the Houthis in Yemen. So this morning, we've launched Operation Prosperity Guardian, under the umbrella of Combined Maritime Forces and under the leadership of Task Force 153. That operation is bringing together more than a dozen countries from around the world to conduct joint patrols in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. 
Now, friend of the show, Dr. Trita Parsi reacted to Austin's announcement, noting not a single country on the Red Sea agreed to join the U.S. coalition to safeguard the Red Sea, and only one Arab country joined, Bahrain. What does that tell us about Biden's diplomatic pull? And as we covered yesterday, oil giant BP announced that it was suspending its trade routes. Now Taiwan's Evergreen Shipping said it is going to halt all transit through the Red Sea and will no longer accept any Israeli cargo. Evergreen is the world's sixth largest shipping firm. Five of the largest have now halted Red Sea transit. 60% of the global container fleet is now avoiding the Red Sea altogether. Here's President Biden's National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan just two weeks ago on the state of peace in the region. What we said is we want to depressurize, de-escalate, and ultimately integrate the Middle East region. The war in Yemen is in its 19-month of truce. For now, the Iranian attacks against U.S. forces have stopped. Our presence in Iraq is stable. I emphasize for now because all of that can change. And the Middle East region is quieter today than it has been in two decades. Now, ironically, working toward that peace has included getting Saudi Arabia to come to peace with Yemen. And now right. the United States of America is angling to get Saudi Arabia on board with this, it's giving Operation Iraqi Freedom, this um, Operation Prosperity Guardian, uh, which would put it at odds with these uh, Houthi fighters who, in their view, are enacting a kind of informal blockade in support of Palestine and against the ongoing siege. Right. Um, it's, uh, it's not good. I mean, this is going to massively impact. Uh, Dr. Trita Parsi said it wouldn't impact the U.S. very much so far uh, because we're um, somewhat oil and energy independent. But it will, ha it will raise um, prices uh, globally significantly, and that is a total disaster. Um, I, I think everyone's going to be frustrated being—I mean, the Red Sea is international waters. It's illegitimate for these—the um, Houthi to fire on these ships. But the reality becomes, what do we do about it? Now we're, so now we're going to pay more to have our U.S. You know, U.S. is providing security for this region uh, for uh, for transit through this waterway. Uh, that's costing us more money. Again, that's America needing to be world policemen to police this region uh, half a world away. Um, I think that's probably going to be very frustrating to a lot of American taxpayers when they think through it. And uh, and and yes, it's you know where are our allies in this in this region? What has come of our diplomacy, our outreach to the Arab world? If when push comes to shove, nobody's on board for our project. Yeah, I think what's happening is that you have a lot of leaders in a lot of these Arab nations who are perfectly happy to go along with the normalization efforts with Israel and with the West that have been ongoing up until the conflict basically basically emerged in October. 7th. But at this point, even though I think that they would largely still be aligned with that effort, their populations right. are furious over the treatment of Behind Palestinians. Behind closed doors, they're totally—the uh, leadership is still completely on board. In, and in fact, groups like Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthis are inconvenient for them, and they wish they could magically make them disappear. But their people don't feel that way. Yeah, the, the, the bulk of people in the Arab world are— horrified by what they see in Gaza. We're at um, 10,000 child deaths alone was the number that was just hit over the last 24 hours or so. And they're seeing this as emblematic of the West's long-term treatment of Arabs and, you know, and disregard for the value of their lives. And so the leaders of these nations are being 
are between a rock and a hard place and are trying to sit this one out, even as the United States are trying to pull a country like Saudi Arabia into an antagonistic relationship, a direct antagonistic relationship with Yemen again. And so the question I think that you raise is a good one. The world is going to suffer from higher oil costs. These ships are going to have to go all the way around the Horn of Africa, which is like I think three, takes three times longer and is more expensive and more dangerous uh, for sailing conditions and a whole lot of other reasons. So how much this is the question that's presenting to the world? A similar question that was presented to Ukraine when the harvests were interrupted, Ukraine, the grain basket of the global south and all that sort of thing. How much is the world expected to pay for the policy decisions of the United States of America? How much is the world expected to pay because Israel is making a decision to continue a siege now two months out from a horrific event of October 7th, in which they've killed multitudes more of people, 20 times more people than died now on October 7th. How much longer does this have to go, and how, how, why, does it, why is it always the case, seemingly, that the global South and the rest of the world has to be inconvenienced because of the United States' choice to, for well, instance, veto these UN resolutions for a ceasefire? Yeah, I, I mean, it's... To be clear, though, it's mostly a policy choice by the state of Israel, not by the United States. I mean, we we don't have to continue supporting them or giving money. Again, I would cut that off in, independent of the situation. But given the total support in Israel for continuing this um, war against Hamas, I have very little doubt that it would continue, even, even absent greater U.S. support. Well, I guess my feeling is that since uh, the U.S. gives Israel more aid than any other country in the world, that it is upping that aid amount in, in the wake of October 7th, that the bombs that are being dropped are bombs that are procured from the United States of America, that America is giving Israel diplomatic cover in the UN, preventing it from having um, uh, to come before the International Criminal Court and have investigations into the war crimes that have been alleged, uh, that but for the U.S.'s financial and political support, Israel could not implement the siege that has been implementing on Gaza and, moreover, could not defend itself against an aligned Arab world that is clearly willing to step in in the ways that it can and defend the interests of Palestinians in the ways that it can. And that's what we're seeing play out in the Red Sea. Yeah. I mean, Israel has won wars against, you know, these countries throughout its entire history and has the will and the might to continue. I, I mean, we're not disagreeing. I would not fund this effort any longer. It's clearly harming our own national security interests. It's looping the U.S. into something that is really not our business, the same way Ukraine is. Um, but I, I have, we can't, I, I, again, I, I don't think the U.S. should be the world's policeman, neither for or against this conflict or any other. This is a dispute. This is a regional dispute between two governing uh, groups that hate each other, have good reason to hate each other, frankly, given everything that has occurred. And I see that likely to continue, and the best we can do is try to stay out of it. Well, I think you can't really have it both ways, right? Either we give Israel that much support because they need it, they wouldn't be able—what what are the arguments that are made around Iron Dome funding? That if you don't fund the Iron Dome, Israel's going to be— Hit well, that's the interest group trying to get bombs. more money out of that. All right, but it. you can't have it both ways. Well, either, I'm not having it both ways. Either, either Israel cannot persist without uh, American funding, and that's why they lean so hard on AOC and she's crying on the House floor over the Iron Dome mm -hmm. votes, or it's an amazing, courageous, brave nation that can defend itself, in which case, why are we involved at all? Well, right. Lobbyists are always saying, my, my issue will be defeated and destroyed unless you give me more money, but, you know, that's a— that's a plea for funds, right? That's uh, that's the donors' um, donors' um, 
in position for more money. All right. Well, we will definitely continue to follow this, including some real, I think, problems that the Israeli military is experiencing in their ground game, really putting to test the quality of their uh, ability to uh, do uh, ground incursions going forward. Do stick around. We're rising after this. The humanitarian breakdown continues in the Gaza Strip. Per the New York Times, during the overnight hours on Sunday, Israeli forces conducted a raid on the only functioning hospital in northern Gaza, as reported by Gaza's health ministry and hospital authorities. Numerous medical staff members were briefly detained in the uh, operation. After a three-hour period of detention, Israel released 21 medical staff members from Al-Awada Hospital, as indicated in a statement by the Al-Awada Health and Community Association, the organization overseeing the hospital. The statement mentioned that Dr. Ahmed Muana, the hospital's director, continued to be held in Israeli custody. And on Saturday, Israeli forces entered and utilized bulldozers to demolish sections of Kamal Adwan Hospital in northern Gaza. A video uploaded by Al Jazeera videographer and reporter Anas al-Sharif indicates that this action resulted in the tragic deaths of numerous patients and injured displaced Palestinians. The footage suggests that the courtyard housing tents set up by refugees were intentionally bulldozed by Israeli forces, leaving little opportunity for people to evacuate. Here is some of that video. انسحبت وتراجعت قوات الاحتلال من داخل هذه المستشفى لكن أتينا إلى المكان لكن تفاجأنا مما حدث جماعة هذه الجريمة الذي ارتكبها الاحتلال بحق مستشفى كمال عدوان this comes as Human Rights Watch on Monday accused Israel of using starvation of civilians as a weapon in its war in Gaza against Hamas by blocking deliveries of food, water and fuel and by impeding humanitarian access. The group said Israel's actions could constitute a war crime. The organization cited statements by senior Israeli leaders to support its claim that depriving Gazans of necessities was a policy implemented by the country's armed forces. An Israeli government spokesperson, Elon Levy, rejected the report as, quote, a lie and blamed Hamas for hijacking uh, aid intended for civilians in Gaza. More information has come out on an incident in which Israeli forces accidentally shot and killed their own hostages. Let's watch this exchange. In other cases, where the people that are being shot dead are not, in fact, Israeli hostages, but are, in fact, Palestinians, has it until now been IDF policy to shoot dead people who are clearly civilians, that are Palestinians, because they are Palestinians? As you said, incidences like this are clearly violations of rules of engagement. Our forces have a very clear mission to distinguish between civilians and between combatants. Hamas tries to make that as difficult as possible. Not in this case. Not in, in this case. The firefight was, this is the IDF saying this, the, uh, the firefight was over. These three men were left behind. So just answer my question. Were they shot because the IDF thought that they were Palestinian civilians? Is that what happened? The IDF is investigating the incident. I can't comment on it. This was clearly an awful, awful mistake. 
Now, Israelis hit the streets in protest after news of how the IDF killed hostages came to light. And there has been some follow-up. Reuters reported um, yesterday that signs reading SOS and help three hostages in Hebrew were found on the walls of the building about 200 meters from where the hostages were shot. Uh, it also uh, came out that they were uh, had taken their top their tops off in order to presumably demonstrate that they were not armed. Um, and no, yet they that were waving didn't, a white and we're waving, of course, white flag. Yeah, we, it's um, it's absolutely horrible. I mean, can you imagine being held captive for a period of weeks, um, potentially uh, potentially escaping has, or, or being let go or somehow, you know, getting away from that situation, the, all the stress and pain of that, only to at the very last minute when you should be rescued to be killed by the armed forces of your own side? Um, I'm glad that um, the Israeli forces are have admitted that this was a terrible, terrible mistake, and there should be consequences for it, because the whole—one uh, of the goals, in addition to eliminating Hamas, has to be to recover the hostages. And um, it's very—it's it's just very bad, and there needs to be accountability for it. Yeah, I mean, the implications of what happened, I think, regrettably, are even broader than the immediate tragedy of those three hostages being killed in that way. And we saw it in the in the in the hours and day or so after the news first broke. There were a number of people who came forward saying, well, this 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 is a tragedy, obviously, but it happened because uh, Hamas doesn't wear uniforms. Or it happens because I think Bethany Mandel did a tweet where she said, well, you have to keep in mind that Hamas often transports prisoner, uh, tr uh, gets around by addressing uh, women as women in hijab, uh, so that that I guess if we connect mm -hmm. the dots is the is a reason why it might make sense to shoot I guess at women in hijab, but if you play any of that out, what you're basically arguing is that this is a justification for shooting Palestinian innocents at any time. If someone looks like a civilian, then they could be a terrorist. So I guess it's okay to shoot them, which leads one to some certain conclusions about why there might be so many civilian deaths, not just in the wake of the October 7th crisis, but generally speaking, the number, hundreds of Palestinians that are shot by the IDF each year. Right. I mean, I don't think that should be counted as justification just because your task is difficult, and it is difficult. Uh, it, it is true that uh, Hamas is embedded within a very dense civilian uh, population and um, and it, it is only with great difficulty that they're being hunted down. Um, that is reality. Uh, that does not mean that one has license to just start shooting people at random or to shoot first, ask questions later. Um, obviously, that puts Israeli hostages' lives in danger, in addition to uh, the Palestinian people, in addition to um, Christian Palestinians in the region, um, who's, who we've uh, talked about being um, killed inadvertently in, in their churches, the relatives of former Representative Justin Amash. Um, these are not—this is not a level—a casualty rate, a civilian casualty rate that, um, that is acceptable to the U.S. or international um, standards. Um, you know, that said, it is, it, is, it is difficult because they are trying to root out a terrorist organization that is embedded in a— densely populated civilian areas, and I have, and they have the will to continue it until that terrorist group is totally destroyed or, or gives up, which I, I guess they have no intention of doing. Yeah. I mean, 
We've had we've heard from Israeli military officers or from American military officers that both kind of point to the impossibility of ever rooting out Hamas. And so at a certain point, when you have your military experts saying, well, that's not possible, absent killing everybody in the area, killing all 2.3 million Palestinians who live in Gaza, then at a certain point, that becomes a pretext for doing what in the alternative. And when you see um, Israeli developers putting out plans for resorts and housing in Gaza, when you see people putting up, uh, IDF members putting up Israeli flags uh, uh, and um, hanging banners um, uh, and, and posting menorahs in a way that I think if we imagine it being reversed, if um, some Muslim occupying force went into a Jewish settlement, a Jewish uh, neighborhood, and started putting up religious symbols for their own religion, we would see that as inappropriate and in a kind of conquering gesture as opposed to any principled desire to root out terrorism. Um, it, it, starts, it starts to be, I think, more difficult, to, more and more difficult to defend. And I think that's what the public relations battle that Biden is struggling with right now is really all about. Yeah, although, I mean, that conquest is occurring and about to occur, and the frankly, only way to stave it off is for Hamas, which is the governing authority of the region, to, to give up, right? That would be the easiest way to save tens of thousands of additional innocent lives in the region. So, I mean, in the way that warfare goes, you can, they're, they're, they're committed to continuing the war until that objective is completed. And if that comes at the expense, I'm, like, I'm not endorsing that, but that's, that is what they're going to do. Well, I, I would disagree. I think that even Israel can't get away on an on a international stage with killing 2.3 million um, Gazans. And so the question is, what can they get away with before there are significant international consequences for them? And it's a little bit of a game of chicken that's being played now. Moreover, and I know that we disagree about this, but the point of the matter is that Israel, the weapons that Israel is using in Gaza are American weapons. And so America is in a unique position of having a great deal of influence over uh, Israel's ongoing Well, we don't behavior. disagree. We can cut, I would cut that off right now. I, I, would, I would cut that off regardless of the situation, because it's not our job to favor other countries' defenses. So again, that's, it comes down to what Biden is willing to do and how much political capital he's willing to extend on a country that is not even going along with his stated policy goals, which is a two-state solution. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, of course, is going around saying that you can count on me to thwart a two-state solution. It will never happen under me. Palestinians will never have their own state. At what point is Biden going to stop providing diplomatic cover for someone who is going so clearly against his own stated policy goals? Well, but in a way, we are—I mean, we are—we're <laughs> providing pressure for the war to end because we're— helping to arm one side to eventually win the war by conquering the area. So, like, we are... We are by conquering the, the, the... I mean, the area is... By eliminating the enemy The area was conquered already. It was already a... Oh, right, but it's, o well, it's occupied by an enemy force to Israel, and again, they're going to continue until they're defeated. All right. Stick around. We're rising right after this. Has the government been hiding the truth about aliens? In a recent interview with News Nation, retired U.S. Navy Rear Admiral, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Tim Gallaudet, said it was time to come clean. Let's take a listen. I think it's about time that we do disclose that we 
we are in contact with non-human intelligence. That, that's what needs to be put out there in the public. In the recent National Defense Authorization Act that was signed last week, a half-page amendment written by Republican Senator Tim Burchett that would force the Department of Defense to declassify records relating to publicly known sightings passed, but Congress granted the government authority to remove information relating to UFOs from official records if it could feasibly harm national security. The executive branch has up to 25 years within a record's creation to make it public. The bill's passage comes as an increasing number of former defense officials are pushing for more transparency regarding UFOs. Including that rear admiral that we just heard from saying that he thinks the government has been in contact with um, extraterrestrial life. And that is exactly the kind of thing we want the government to declassify that information. Uh, but as I've said when we've talked about this previously, I have no faith that this is what we'll get, even if uh, the version, the Tim Burchett version, passed, because any national security exception is going to result in them redacting wide swaths of information pertinent to this subject, as we've seen on every other subject, as we've seen on the JFK assassination files, as we've seen on the COVID origins, ordered bipartisan fashion by President Biden to declassify what we know about COVID origins, what has caused our various intelligence agencies to reach different conclusions about COVID origins. We want to know. Instead, they put out a brief summary of information that is absolutely, yeah. totally public already. So national security is, is is the is the blank check for the government to deny, to um, to to equivocate, to thwart yeah. independent efforts to learn information, and uh, anyone who has experienced filing Freedom of Information Act requests at any level, local, state, federal, knows that they make the process as difficult as possible. They you know, work within the letter and spirit of the law sure. to, to make it as difficult as possible. You'll get back pages and pages of documents. Sometimes you get back too many documents to make sense of any of them. Here's a stack of papers, 99.9% .9 of which are irrelevant to your search criteria, to your query, to make it harder for you to sift through the information. And then you go through things that are just Ever blank, you know, black lines yeah. over everything. Um, it's a huge pain. Yeah, look, to your point, I know you can drive a spacecraft through the hole created by the uh, state interest national security <laughs> exception. However, I don't want to skip over the nature of what um, that national security official Gallaudet said. He didn't just say there's evidence of intelligent life. He said there's evidence of communication. Talk to them. Yes. That suggests an ongoing dialogue, if you will. So there's a lot of UFO scenarios that could exist. There could have been a lone craft that had a mal malfunction that crashed to Earth, and they found the ship in the dead body, and that was that. Right. And that happened once in 1953, and that was that. Right. Um, there's a world where there was like an archaeological dig, and they found out that aliens had crashed a thousand years ago. I mean, there's a lot of different scenarios in which you could discover alien life, know of alien life, find alien technology that don't involve an ongoing communication, an ongoing relationship with an entire alien civilization. And so I do wonder, is he actually communicating something real there in that clip? Was it a, a, a slip yeah, of the what tongue? Does he know? What does he know? Yes, that, that really generates more curiosity. That, that's giving us it's putting us more of an alienation scenario. <laughs> like uh, what was the movie Contact? Yes. Did that count? I guess that was we yes. received a communication from them 
we didn't communicate back, but they told us how well, to they, assemble the spacecraft so that uh, we did communicate Jody back. Foster we sent Jodie Foster over there, yeah. you know. So I, I would call I would count that as communication. That is incredibly exciting. The flip side of that is the the point that we've been at I think for a long time. You and I, Robbie, is. How much right. longer are we going to keep talking about this? So uh, Ross Douthat wrote in the New York Times a few days ago a, a piece with a headline that really captured my sentiment here. It was titled, It's Time for UFO Whistleblowers to Show Their Cards. Yes. It's 100%. time. Put up or shut up time. But if he knows <laughs> what, what, that we've been, the government has communicated with alien life, what did we say and what did they say? <laughs> 100%. Is this been transcribed? 100%. Where? Again, where's this facility? You know I'm ready to lead my January 6th style, <laughs> uh, uh, storm the building group of people. Um, I'm going to put on my, my, my horns and, uh, and go shirtless and say, let's, let's take over this facility. That's how you relate the to the democracy. aliens. Do you yeah. look more like the aliens? No, I'm doing the, I was doing the, the January 6th No, guy. I know. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but does that also happen I want to confuse them about our, our uh, physiognomy. <laughs> sure. um, yeah. Yeah. So look, in in his piece, I'm read that he Ross raises right some now. of the same concerns that we've had. That you know, we're we're seeing people like um, Mike Rounds and Chuck Schumer have a lot of bombast at these hearings and make these kinds of demands. But what is it that they think that they know that is causing them to have so much energy around this? Um, he does a little bit of that. Um, UFO people are talking to unsavory folks, so you shouldn't believe them. Mm -hmm. Say, pointing out that. Um, Grush has gone on Joe Rogan and Tucker Carlson. Not, I'm not really sure how that's relevant, except for that a lot of people go where they'll yeah. be heard. Uh, and if the mainstream media isn't interested in the story, then the mainstream media isn't interested in the story. Um, but he says, look, I'm excited about this. I'm someone who's open to this. He's a, he's a believer, like we are. But at a certain point, it does feel like you're getting jerked around. Yeah, and Ross Douthat is and he's the only genuinely conservative, conservative, like not conservative, and I'm a, number, I'm a conservative, but I hate Trump and I hate everything Republicans and MAGA and conservative mm -hmm. stands for. That is not Ross Douthat, um, which makes him, I think, a, a very good columnist. So it would not surprise me that he's open-minded about this, but um, we can only be, we're open-minded, but we can't, be, we can't be deluded. We can't be taken for a ride. We need, we need the facts. Yeah, he says, look, he, he's going through the probabilities of it, right? Like, what's the likelihood that this thing is real? He says, the probabilities of extraterrestrial life or non-human intelligence aside, the best reason to doubt such secret keeping is that it would require too much of a government that has let so many major secrets slip over the last 75 years. He says, the deep state let the Soviets steal atomic secrets and the mainstream press published the Pentagon Papers. Right. It had its Cold War laundry aired by the Church Committee. It saw much of the war on terrorism architecture rapidly exposed. So it's hard to see how it could have kept a lid on programs to study actual extraterrestrial or interdimensional visitors, especially over generations, and especially if we're supposed to believe that well, private contractors are part of the cover-up as well. Yes, um, but I guess the retort to that would be, well, they're not successfully covering it up because there's all these people who claim to have direct information saying that it is a cover-up, that we have encountered alien life, and they have the information, and we're in the, we're in the middle ground stage where there are all sorts of people who have exposed that falsehood, and now we're just waiting for additional verification, is yeah. I guess would be the... Well, you does say the counter-argument is that there's stuff that we still don't know about, uh, Saudi connections to 9-11, um, you know... That there, oh, there's the a, vague. 
If a vague ghost wrote this column, we're not allowed to say that. Not allowed to say, I wonder if there are any police informants among the January 6th crowd. I can't, can't say that. All right. Okay. Well, the point yeah. is that he's, he's, he's open yeah. to it. But he just, he closes saying that, you know, there, there's no reason not to share the truth if you think you have possession of it, trusting that the American people have a high tolerance for weirdness and that in the long run, only truth will set us free. If there are any government informants uh, within my my mob, the Robbie's mob to storm the <laughs> alien building, um, snitches get stitches. That's all I'm saying. More rising right after this. Is the newest candidate for most base, Senator John Fetterman, the Pennsylvania Democrat? Well, he's seen his stock rise among conservatives for a series of takes that seem to buck the rest of his party, as well as some progressives. In fact, Fetterman has declined to identify himself as a progressive recently, something conservative commentator Ian Miles Chong pointed out that John Fetterman is now a de facto conservative. I'm not a progressive, he now says. He previously, however, identified as a socialist. He's also slamming Democrats for their double standard on Bob Menendez, George Santos, and actually isn't up for re-election until 2028. Nature is healing. That was all according to Ian Miles Chong. Now, earlier this week, Fetterman was confronted by pro-Palestine protesters. Uh, and has ha had a series of incidents over the course of the last two months where he's come uh, for a lot of criticism from people on the left for failure to support a ceasefire, notably leaving uh, Congress one day while waving an American flag in the middle of a pro-ceasefire protest. And he is, the, on video, repeatedly identifying as a progressive in the past. So the idea that he has never called himself yeah. a progressive is just so, factually inaccurate. So this, this is how this is all going down. There's been the stuff about Israel-Palestine, and there's been some other indications from him that he is on board with supporting some more conservative immigration policy. This after he very notably was married to a woman who was an undocumented immigrant when they met, um, and who, in his campaign materials, uh, was very uh, complimentary of America's history of welcoming immigrants. Uh, in his campaign video, he says, the Statue of Liberty says, send us your poor, your huddled masses. As long as you remain true to that original sentiment, America will continue to grow and prosper. So that's one area in which he seems to have done a 180. But particularly on this, um, am I a progressive issue? Look, a lot of real progressives were skeptical from, about him from the beginning, but appreciated that he was good on a couple of issues, uh, and so therefore wanted to help him get into office in Pennsylvania. And he has working class bona fides. Well, he actually is from a very wealthy family, which is something that people criticize, that it's a kind of a cosplay that he puts on dressing down the way he does. But he tweeted out recently uh, an old video of him from 2022 in which he says, I am not a progressive, I'm just a regular Democrat, seeming to stand for the proposition that he's never been a progressive and that people who wanted to put him in that box were wrong to do so. Now, that video got slapped with a community's notes that included three different instances of John Fetterman saying, I am a progressive, and I believe we have a video clip of one of those instances here to play. I'm John Fetterman, and I'm a Democrat, and I'm a progressive. All right. So for obvious reasons, progressives who worked hard to get him into office, who gave him money, 
who supported him as he was being attacked by the right for recovering from his stroke, um, are now feeling like they're thrown under the bus. And some staffers in particular, uh, one of whom I worked with on the Bernie campaign, who works as uh, his chief of comms, I, as I understand it, is getting a lot of personal blowback and calling out on the internet precisely because it's difficult to understand how a candidate can do this much of a pivot and maintain the trust and support of his staffers. Right, well, obviously, he can't take the position that he's never called himself a progressive because he's on camera doing so. Uh, it could be the case that he no longer identifies as sure. a progressive. Um, I, perhaps he finds the—so uh, several of these recent scuffles with progressivists, with progressives have been on the Israel-Palestine issue. Um, there was him actually wearing the Israeli flag as like a cape while walking out um, through a—I I believe it was through a pro-Palestinian kind of demonstration. Uh, I think or the, right? when I don't he know wore the flag, I think it was when he was attending that pro-Israel rally. Okay. Um, but he was waving a flag while, while walking through a ceasefire. For whatever reason, it, it seems—my guess is that he personally finds the, the activities of the pro-Palestinian activists to be alienating, and it's driving him away from what he used to call his own progressivism, although obviously he was a progressive at one point. I think maybe he just is no longer. Uh, I don't think that there's been any shift on Israel. He, his district is one with a large Jewish population. I think, like many politicians across the country, that's a consideration when they decide where to come down on these kinds of policies, whether or not they're going to take money from APAC, uh, whether they, they want to have to go up against huge APAC spends, like uh, another uh, Philly uh, representative, Summer Lee, was almost defeated by a multimillion-dollar last-minute APAC spend in her district. So these are really real considerations that people have to think about. Um, but I think that from the beginning, I think most progressives understood that he was only a partial ally and that he wasn't going to be on board with every single agenda item. And that many, many people—there's a, there's a kind of a, a saying, progressive, but for Palestine, that it has often been the case that many progressives, genuine progressives and all these other issues, don't stand, keep the line when it comes to Palestine. And it has been a really red line uh, in American politics for a really long time. So that, that would make him unusual even among progressives. However, I do think it's his turn, the, the choice to be so openly antagonistic, I think, to the ceasefire act activists and also to make such a pivot on immigration, given that his own wife was an undocumented immigrant, it seems like particularly hypocritical. Sure. Um Maybe, again, it's an issue where he's just read the, the tea leaves. I mean, even so many um, Democrats, um, um, moderate voters, independents, in addition to you know, virtually all Republicans, so upset with Biden's handling of immigration and the border issue, um, perceive vulnerability on that issue if you don't speak up against it. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, one, one Twitter uh, user—she's um, a grassroots organizer, Alexandra Hunt, pointed out that it's not only that— his own wife, and I think also one of her or both of her parents uh, were undocumented uh, before they met each other. And I think he enabled them to, to become documented, partly because of his um, stature uh, as an elected official. Uh, she pointed out, Fetterman has never been progressive, but endorsing talks for tougher immigration laws when he's married to an incredible woman who was once an illegal immigrant and who kept his campaign alive while he was recovering from a stroke is actually sickening. I mean, just on a human level, I do think that that is a narrative that he's going to have trouble working through. Um, and whether or not he's able to—I mean, as we pointed out in the read, he is not up for re-election for a long time. 
who knows how long people's memories are, but it's, I'm really doubtful that he's going to get any of the progressive support that he got last time around. Sure. Although, I don't know, if, is that hypocrisy? I mean, there are, I know that there are many immigrants, including, I think, undocumented immigrants who support, who they've got in and now support harsher um, Yeah, it's a common, I would argue, not especially ethical time. choice, but it's a very common thing to want to pull the ladder up behind you and support policies only insofar as they help you. Um, and no matter who else they hurt. So, yeah, yeah that is, a, that is un, a regrettably a, a, a pretty common position to have. I mean, so what do you make of this? Someone like E. Miles Chong rushing out to throw their arms around um, John Fetterman is giving me the same sort of vibe as these MSNBC pundits running to embrace someone like Liz Cheney because they say a couple of things that are aligned with the Democratic Party's interest. Do you think this is premature, or is Fetterman really based? Based is a like a mindset and a mentality and a based on like based literally on like the comments you make and how willing you are to triple progressive people uh, to trigger progressive people excuse me so he is based in that sense this is just a reaction to like you know oh the liberal tears are delicious to me which is a lot of what passes for conservative media commentary these days I, I'd point out that. I think a lot of his policies haven't substantially changed now there's a shift going on in the Republican Party to be at least performatively more working class. Um, and also, you know, there's a change happening on trade and tr that's, you know, been underway for like 10 years now with Donald Trump's takeover of the Republican Party. I saw recently that, uh, I mean, I think just yesterday, Fetterman joined J.D. Vance and some other Republicans in criticizing this um, purchase of a U.S. steel company by a Japanese um, uh, company, which is something that I think conservatives, free market Republicans used to, would be totally fine with, and now they've kind of, they've turned against that in part because of Trump. Uh, maybe many Fetterman-style Democrats would have always opposed it, but it's this kind of strange new consensus um, that has emerged. Um, actually, J.D. Vance is a good example of how this has changed, because in his book, Hillbilly Elegy, he specifically writes about how um, his his grandfather, his papa, was outraged about the Japanese buying, um, uh, becoming more involved in the local steel manufacturing because it was all World War II veterans who literally, you know, wanted to kill the Japanese. But um, actually, papa comes to realize, and so does the town, that it was good for the economics of the town to have this massive investment from the Japanese in it. And uh, now he's just like totally gone against that. So I know what we probably you, What do you make of everybody issue, pivoting like that? J.D. Vance is someone who also has written critically of um, Medicare, the social welfare state, Social Security and Medicare, and is now talking about how we have to preserve it. Yeah. You mentioned that I like the old book. version. <laughs> right, but that's the problem. There are all these versions, and something similar is happening with Fetterman. Comparisons have been made to Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin now that Fetterman is having this pivot. Who knows how far it's going to go if that's a premature uh, characterization. But, I mean, what are the American people, people supposed to think when these politicians run for office on one platform and one ideology, and then suffer no consequences when there's a pretty pronounced pivot in what they say that they stand for. Isn't this exactly why so many people, especially younger people, are disaffected with politics and choosing increasingly to stay home or vote completely outside of the two-party system? Well, with people like, you know, Cinema and Manchin, their issue is they pivot because they they, they, run, they want to be the Democratic nominee, so they have to say a bunch of things to make Democrats happy, the and then they're running Kirsten in. Kirsten Cinema, she was a Green Party lefty, and she won. There was nothing that was forcing her 
to she was voting wildly out of step with the people in her district, which is part of why she decided ultimately not to run for re-election. Well, right. No, right? but then what I'm saying when she's a general election candidate in a swing state, I think she felt pressure politically. Not, we're not talking about a primary versus general pivot. Well, that's the pivot. We're I, talking I'm, about a I got I, I, a, a, a pre-election versus post-election pivot. Not the not the differences of your framing or posture when you're a Democratic Party candidate versus a general election candidate, but a, a foundational shift from the, the kind of core Democratic, frankly, policies on immigration, for instance, that you say that you were committed to. Going from seeing the praises of the words on the Statue of Liberty to saying, I agree, I mean, I don't want to oversimplify what he said, but basically agreeing with the Republican negotiations on some pretty draconian border policies from the, perspective Fetterman Fetterman. from the perspective of Democrats, draconian border policies, that, that strikes much more, I think, at the heart of the idea of a voter betrayal. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think, to me, Fetterman seems annoyed with uh, progressive activists. Uh, Kirsten Sinema seems like she, on some level, just got along better with the Republicans in Congress. And I think Joe Manchin had, was just contending with the fact that his state voted for Donald Trump by, like, 40 million points. And so he needs to say no to some Biden policies to stay in office. And yet, when you do that and you're not even choosing to stay in office— it suggests that there's other things that— Wasn't even going to be enough, because the state is plus 40, Donald Trump. Right. But if you're not doing it for electoral reasons, at a certain point, one has to start asking questions about what your motives are and whether or not it is a betrayal to the people who did vote for well, you sir, our, as our a Democrat. Well, political, sir, our political figures' motivations are to stay in office and enrich themselves at all costs, just up and down the board, <laughs> right? All right. Well, we'll see if there are any voter consequences for uh, John Fetterman for— these, this, these actions, and if it actually helps him to do exactly that, to stay in office and enrich himself at all costs. Stick around. We're rising for you right after this. CNN recently sat down with 2024 presidential candidate RFK Jr. and asked him why one in five Americans say that he has their vote. Why do one in five Americans say that they're interested in your candidacy? Um, I think they... they uh, those are the people who've heard me speak. You know, those are the people who are listening to podcasts, listening to long-form interviews, and they want to change. They don't want to be told by either party that you have to choose between the, uh, the lesser of two evils. And I think they want a candidate who's going to bring people together, who's going to inspire people, who cares about Who's I'm the only candidate who's talking about what's happening to the middle class in this country and you know, this idea that if you work hard by, and you play by the rules, that you ought to be able to make a decent living, you ought to be able to afford a home, uh, you ought to be able to uh, raise a family, take a summer vacation, and put aside something for retirement. And that was the central promise of the American dream. And, um, and it's now gone for this generation, particularly people in 20 to you know, 35, who I'm very, very strong with, are seeing that it no longer applies to them, and they're um, feeling betrayed. With us now to discuss is Tony Lyons, publisher of Sky Horse and a co-founder of American Values 2024, the pro-RFK Jr. Super PAC. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. Uh, now, that uh, interview, a couple of which we just watched, uh, did the rounds uh, quite virally uh, due to a number of sort of fact checks that came out. And I wondered uh, what uh, the Kennedy crew thought of that appearance and how that interview was handled. 
Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Bobby Kennedy did a great job that he made some very important points. And that's that the American public wants to have a choice. And, you know, more than half the people in this country are saying that they want to have a third alternative to Biden and Trump. And they get that with Bobby Kennedy. And the people who hear him speak are overwhelmingly for him. So, you know, about a month ago, you know, for all people in the country, 35 years or younger, if the election was held today, they would elect Bobby Kennedy. And then two weeks later, there was a poll that showed that for all people under 45, if the election was held today, you know, 35 or 40 million people would vote for Bobby Kennedy right now. So, and you're seeing him surge with black people, Hispanic people, independent voters. So all of these different groups. And so the only question now seems to be, can the DNC or the RNC set back voting rights, you know, for 50 years and try to keep Bobby Kennedy off the ballot? And then you wonder, what are they so afraid of? You know, why do they want to keep Bobby off the ballot rather than get on to the stage with him and convince the public that they have better ideas, that they would do things that would help the American public, that their policies, their letters, you know, that, that, they're, that the things that they would do as president would improve the lives of hardworking Americans. And that's what they're afraid of, that Bobby Kennedy will convince them that he's the better choice. Yes, Democratic um, operatives, uh, mainstream liberal media commentators are very worried about RFK Jr. providing a spoiler effect and hurting Joe Biden. And then many on the right, many conservative media figures are worried that RFK Jr. will provide that exact same effect on Donald Trump's candidacy or whoever the Republican nominee happens to be. Um, how, do, how do you respond to these um, complaints from both sides that uh, somehow these voters that RFK Jr. has attracted are owed to one of the major party candidates? Yeah, I mean, the idea that voters owe their loyalty to any political party is absurd. And that should anger Americans, you know, that they should be able to vote for whoever they want to. And if the DNC and the RNC think that democracy is inconvenient, they should make that clear because that's what they're essentially saying. They're saying that it doesn't matter what you as the voter wants, they've decided that you're only supposed to have two choices. So I can see why they're upset at that, but the American public is not upset and they're excited at the opportunity to be heard. Uh, you referenced uh, a number of polls, and I think the you're completely right that the polls that indicate that there's a lot of appetite for uh, RFK-style uh, independent candidate are causing a lot of concern for establishment members of both parties who are afraid of their vote share getting eaten into by someone like RFK Jr. It's also true, however, that polls show that a majority of Americans, including a majority of Democrats and a majority of independents and 49 percent of Republicans, support a ceasefire. And RFK Jr. was recently engaged in an exchange on breaking points, in which, which also went viral uh, and got a lot of backlash for his position on the Israel-Palestine conflict. Uh, do you think that that is out of step? Are you concerned that, that his position on that issue is widely out of step with the exact sliver of the electorate that might be interested in an alternative to Joe Biden's policies in that region? So I would say that, you know, Bobby Kennedy is clearly the anti-war candidate, and he very strongly wants to prevent 
the forever wars that both of the other candidates have been, you know, proponents of. And so he really will, as president, end these wars and shut down bases and bring the soldiers home and rebuild the middle class in this country. So I think that when it comes down to it, as president, those people would prefer Bobby Kennedy to Trump or Biden. You know, the Israel-Palestine uh, question is an incredibly complicated one, and Bobby is the candidate who, as president, would be able to solve it. And the fact that so many people are so, you know, um, encouraged to believe that Bobby Kennedy could solve it is, is really fascinating because it, it's clear that Trump had the opportunity, that Biden has the opportunity now to come up with really great policies and answers, but he hasn't done it. And so many people are eager for Bobby Kennedy to come out with a statement, and he's doing exactly what a candidate ought to do, that he's studying the history, he's looking at all of the options, and that's what we want. We want a president who's going to come out with common sense answers, who's going to talk to all parties and come up with a way to solve one of the most intransigent issues and problems in the history of mankind. And I believe Bobby Kennedy will do that. And I think voters, when they hear from him more, when they see him on stage debating these issues with Trump and Biden, they will prefer him. They will see that he's the candidate who will solve these kinds of problems. Just a quick follow-up. We're seeing now an escalation, in fact, under Biden's policy in the region. Of course, there's 20,000 people who have been now killed in Gaza. But with the um, uh, choice of the Houthis to block off uh, the Red Sea to the shipping uh, shipping uh, ships, uh, cargoes, the, there's been some significant escalations there where the United States is now putting together an operation, a group of a number of countries that are meant to intercede on the behalf of maintaining those shipping corridors, which many people are saying is an escalation uh, that could lead to conflict, for example, with Iran and other uh, states in the region. So I, I'm curious. You say that he's an anti-war candidate, but many voters are looking and, and having trouble discerning any daylight between Joe Biden's position and RFK Jr.'s position when it comes to Israel. So how would you distinguish one from the other? I would look at what Biden has done so far. So he has clearly not been an anti-war candidate. You know, so when you talk about the Israel-Palestine question, it's incredibly complicated. Bobby Kennedy has much less information at his disposal than Joe Biden does, but he is working hard to talk to as many people as he can and to do the exact things that he would do as president, which is to look at this incredibly complicated question and come up with practical, common sense ways to solve them. So I think that's what you see that's different, that Joe Biden has all of the access to the information and he's not doing anything with it. Tony Lyons, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Well, Disney and
Marvel have a major problem, or should I say a Jonathan Majors problem? The big bad for Marvel's new Kang saga, Jonathan Majors, the actor, was found guilty of two out of four charges of domestic violence for assaulting his then-girlfriend following three days of deliberation in his New York trial. Majors was also found guilty of assault by recklessly causing physical injury, as well as harassment. Now, Majors did not testify in his own defense and initially pleaded not guilty. Following the verdict, Disney Marvel reportedly dropped the actor, though no official statement has been made yet. This is set to cause issues in the up-till-a-few-films-ago financial juggernaut that was the MCU. As The Hollywood Reporter wrote, before his March arrest, Majors was slated to be the key figure in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, with the Disney-owned studio building its entire current story arc around Majors' Kang the Conqueror, their next big villain. The time traveler factored into this year's Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, as well as both seasons of Loki, and was going to lead Avengers The Kang Dynasty, slated for May 1st, 2026. But while some some were happy to see Majors was out at Marvel. Others were quick to compare how Majors was treated to a similar case of superhero shenanigans, or something quite a bit more than that. Ezra Miller, who played The Flash in DC's Justice League films, was arrested last year on charges of abuse, grooming, and kidnapping, yet his solo feature was still released in theaters, albeit to a middling reception. Some online viewed this as hypocritical. One user on X posted, cool, understandable, so how come Warner Brothers didn't fire Ezra Miller? All right. So, what, should we just take the, the, the King stuff yeah, and Jonathan we'll Major okay, stuff we'll, we'll first? We'll come back to Ezra Miller in a minute. Um, yes, so this is uh, not—I would say not fantastic developments for Marvel, because mm -hmm. they had really built him up. Jonathan Majors playing Kang the Conqueror, who, because now the Marvel Cinematic Universe in, is in, involves time travel and also multiple uh, universes, like there's different versions of all the characters, and some characters can travel between these these dimensions. And Kang, in his various formats, was supposed to be the next big bad. So it's not even Jonathan Majors playing like one character; it's him playing like an infinite number of characters across the multiverse. Some of oh, which have figured in already. So they, you know, spoilers for the Ant third Ant Man movie. Like they killed off that one, but the idea is there's a million more of that guy on the way. Um, Am I? I, I'm not as um, yes. devoted as you are to these franchises. I'm not as knowledgeable as you are, but I, I find myself struggling to remember. Who has he already played a role in in these movies? So he was in he was in Ant Man, the third Ant Man movie, which you, you probably mm. didn't see, and he was in both seasons of the Loki television show. So the okay. Loki television show is very, I would say, is very good, especially compared to most of the post Endgame stuff. And look, I will say this. So I think they should actually just move on, not just drop Jonathan Majors, but actually move on from this character. And he's, Loki, a bad, he's like a bad, he's a villain. He's, the, he's supposed to be the next big villain. Like okay. Thanos was the big villain. I see. And he was supposed to be the next kind of Thanos. But frankly, and again, spoil, stop watching if you've not seen the <laughs> second season of Loki and intend to. Um, the second season of Loki actually wraps up his character in a perfectly satisfying way. I, I don't think they necessarily planned it. I think they absolutely did think they were going to bring back other versions of this character. But they end season two of Loki in a way where like the threat of Kang is now well known to a team of two superheroes and powerful people, and they're like monitoring the situation and ready to stop in to prevent him from. Because the idea is that he's like a, he's like like the 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 timeline was being was being maintained so that he never comes into See, this existence. This is why I gave up. But on now these. they're on top of it, so he doesn't. We don't have to deal with him the again. Time so they should drop stuff him. is so lazy. Okay. It, it, you know, it has gotten increasingly lazy. I will agree with that. I think they should pivot away from this. And mm -hmm. there is there's a character 
waiting in the wings, what the fans want. You know what I'm going to say. <laughs> Dr. Doom. It is time for Dr. Doom to enter the MCA, MCU, a famous antagonist of the Fast, uh, Fantastic Four and some other superheroes. Um, we, the fans, believe that Killian Murphy should play him. I'm sure you also have other, um, you know, let me know in the comments who your top choice is. This is, and I think even the plot line they wanted to adapt and have Kang be the villain in for these upcoming films is from the comics, actually a Victor Von Doom storyline. So yeah, when it, I it's Googled Doctor Doom, 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 there's pictures of Jonathan Majors that come up. So it sounds like people were already People are talking about, like, it's time to make this substitution. Okay, so I would say as a more casual viewer... <laughs> Sorry, there's a lot of very highly specific <laughs> knowledge on these subjects. I mean, I would just say it, it seemed like it would be easy to write him out because, frankly, yeah. I don't know him as a Marvel character at all. I know him from his other work, but I don't... I, to me, this has, it would have absolutely no well, effect on my Well, he hasn't appeared in any of the major movies yet. Right. He was in the third Ant-Man movie. So do you think that that perhaps starts to explain why there was the choice to get rid of him, but not to get rid of Ezra Miller, who has been accused of a long list of diverse and serious things? So... Yes. It, I mean, it is, it's a different company, okay. uh, right? Um, uh, Ezra Miller's the, the DC He's universe. DC. Okay, that's helpful. Ezra Miller is, um, I, I mean, his character was like not, I mean, I, he, the, the character was, you know, one, the Flash is one of the team of superheroes. But he had, his, he so had a movie. The, yeah, so the, right, so they did do a movie all around Even him. after the accusations, a full Flash movie, they, which wasn't bad. Were, like, Jonathan, we're in a lull right now. Like, this all happened to Jonathan Majors, Basically, after they'd already filmed all the current stuff with Kang, and were planning to do more, so I, I don't, I don't know if the timeline for the Ezra Miller was like, you know what, let's just, let's just put this one out there, and I, I doubt they're going to make more stuff with him. But you think? Cause I the mean, they're abandoning that whole, that whole. Uh, I think all of those characters are. They're going to do rever redo. They're, they're, they're not going to have Gal Gadot or Henry Cavill. So the, the Flash or, um, movie came out this year. Yeah. It came out this year. I know, but maybe they'd already made it. Okay, but they have scrapped. There's been stories about any number of other movies that they did the, the whole series or the whole movie, and they, Netflix just decides not to put it out. Or all right, whatever. then we can go this way. Ezra Miller got a pass because it's kind of like an intersectional queerness kind of stuff, and uh, and it's racism against Jonathan Majors. I mean, that is definitely the argument I'll that people it. are making. I'll say the thing. <laughs> there you go. I mean, people, people are saying that um, Jonathan Majors uh, being accused of domestic, being Ezra Char Miller was merely you know, engaged in gender of, expression, Brianna. Well, they were both. They both have been charged, uh, accused of hitting women. Um, and the argument, I think, goes something like it, the the social context of Jonathan Majors doing so as a large black man is read differently as Ezra Miller doing so. When Ezra Miller does it, he I, excuse me, they they is just engaged in you know. So it, but it, it's been a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I, I was trying to refresh my memory on all that he was. Uh, they were. I'm sorry. What they were accused of, and Miller was accused of choking a woman on video in a 2020 interview. Uh, 2020 video that went viral. 2020, that happens. Movie comes out in 2023. Okay. Yeah. I mean, okay, well, there, there was the grooming accusations. There is a difference between uh, Jonathan Majors was just convicted. Right. In yes, court. yes. 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 There's a difference between just accused and convicted. Yes. I think it was correct for Marvel to not do anything with the actor or the character until, there was until a you conviction. had a conviction. And I was looking, and I did not see any Ezra Miller convictions, although I did see there were some, as of the article that was written a while ago, there were some pending charges out of an assault that I believe happened in 
Hawaii that just had not come to resolution yet. The Wikipedia page for this stuff is is, is very long, and um, and there's some there's some weird stuff here. But, like what? Uh, okay, I'm just going to read this from this is from Wikipedia. So totally disregard if you think Wikipedia is all lies at all times. But um, uh, this is a relationship with Tokata Iron Eyes, which is a is a person. Um, according to a former resident of Miller, Ezra Miller had a farm in Vermont. Miller believed that people criticizing his relationship with this person, Iron Eyes, because she is an apocalyptic Native American spider goddess, who, along with Miller as Jesus Christ, will bring about an indigenous revolution. Miller allegedly refers to themselves as a messiah to Native Americans. Miller does not have indigenous ancestry. Yeah, I mean, that's, look. Uh, okay, what's the the source for that is Vanity Fair. That's, that's <laughs> Ezra Miller's Messiah legitimate. delusions inside the Flash stars, dark spiral. Yeah, look, there's a mother and child that took out an order of protection against Miller, and again, that grain of salt. Yeah. No accusations yet. There's a woman in Germany that accused Miller of harassment. Um, there's the grooming and manipulation allegations. I think this was from Miller's time in Iceland. There's, and, and yeah. he has put out statements saying he's, they've been dealing with complex mental health issues, and that is what it is. Yeah. I'm right. I'm not swooping in here to try to uh, meet you, Ezra Miller, but I, I don't think you're wrong, frankly, to, or, or whoever was raising these comparisons. Um, I, I don't think that's unfair to wonder at the—I mean, it is, again, it's two different companies. Yeah. So. And I also think that Jonathan Majors is probably—you know, he's out for Marvel, but he's probably not out for The Count. There's many people who have been charged and convicted of domestic abuse in Hollywood who have yeah. come back. Sean Penn, very famously, uh, not, just, just beat up an anonymous person, but actually Madonna, and his career doesn't seem to have suffered, uh, really. Yeah. Really I, and we haven't really, you know, dealt with the— Substance of the accusation against um, yeah, sure. majors, which was this you know domestic violence dispute. They did release recently some video footage um, of him and the then girlfriend kind of tussling in the street. It, it certainly didn't. And some people looked at it and said, "Oh, this acquits him because he's running away from her." Yeah, it certainly didn't. It, it, yes, he was in fact running from her at one point. That earlier it. it it did look like there was—I mean, frankly, it looked like there was just an altercation between them, and it was a bad—but that doesn't mean he's not guilty. Sure. But. There was some audio that was going sort of viral over the weekend um, in which he was engaged in what I would describe as controlling mm -hmm. behavior, saying, I need you to treat me and support me, back me up like I'm Martin Luther King, like Coretta Scott backed up these other great men. Um, and, you know, it wasn't a good look, right. but is that a crime? No, no. but apparently enough evidence was adduced to this trial like to find that they... It looks to me like they both physical with each other, but he's a he's very a imposing, yeah. strong um, person. So, so anyway, uh, but very interesting. It reminded me of the uh, departure from Rick and Morty, of the, the voice of Rick and Morty um, earlier this year. And people are saying this new season is one of the best seasons ever. It was fantastic. I just finished it. I watched the season finale last night. It was uh, fantastic, complete with a great Lost reference in the final episode. All right. Well, I have to finish it then myself, so maybe we can do another segment <laughs> about oh, Be still culture. my beating heart. <laughs> this has been the most fun uh, we've had on the show all day. More rising right after this.
As we discussed yesterday, a monument to post-Civil War reconciliation in Arlington National Cemetery is at the center of a new debate surrounding whether Confederate statues should remain standing. Work to remove the statue did start on Monday, but now a, a district judge has issued a restraining order to stop the removal process while a lawsuit opposing this takedown plays out. As reported by Colin Rugg, Trump-appointed U.S. District Judge Rossi Alston has issued a restraining order halting the removal of this memorial at Arlington National Cemetery. Alston explained that the lawsuit brought forward by Defend Arlington claimed the removal of the memorial involves the disturbance of grave sites. In a footnote, Alston notes that he takes very seriously the representations of officers of the court, and should those representations in this case be untrue or exaggerated, the court may take appropriate sanctions. As a reminder, the Department of Defense ordered the removal of the monument as part of its campaign to eliminate Confederate-connected monuments across the country. So we discussed this uh, yesterday, and then after we discussed it, this news broke that they had actually halted the takedown of this um, memorial that is in Arlington Cemetery, um, one of, uh, a prominent um, uh, Confederate uh, memorial, uh, to, and actual members of the Confederacy buried there near it. Um, I, I do not have particularly strong feelings on this, but I was on with Amber yesterday, and she um, she opposed this um, takedown, arguing that it uh, it violated the the original point of this monument was to try to bring the nation back together and make it so that Confederate f former Confederate supporting and sympathetic people stopped feeling like they were not part of the United States, that all the the battle dead should have some kind of entitlement to recognition. Um, I don't have especially strong feelings about it. I do think that desecrating grave sites is serious and should be absolutely avoided. I mean, one of the most horrible stories coming out of Gaza over the weekend was the bulldozing of Palestinian grave sites uh, in Gaza. And I, I agree with the judge's choice to halt the destruction of the monument until that is sorted out on a factual basis. But if it's just about the fact of the monument, I mean, I think it's I think it's kind of awkward that we live in a country where people feel so strongly about defending Confederate monuments. I, I mean, I don't think about Confederate monuments. I'm lucky enough not to live in a part of the country where um, many of these monuments were put up, actually, in the 1950s um, as civil rights, as a kind of a bulwark of response to civil rights legislation, as people were trying to resuscitate um, the uh, heritage of that time as a not-so-subtle uh, nod to a time that they thought was Not better. this one, though. This one was in 1915, yeah, I believe. Yeah, very not this one. So I think a part of the—when all of this was a big brouhaha back in, like, 2016 or 2017 or whenever it was, I do think that, that was an important part of the history that got resurfaced, which is how much of this is, like, Civil War revisionism, and it had nothing to do with the actual— um, soldiers who died in that conflict. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's awkward. I, I can't imagine myself defending the presence of a memorial to a group of people who did a literal insurrection against their country in defense of owning human beings as property. But if people are really invested in it um, and they see that as part of their cultural heritage, you know, they can defend it. I, I can't imagine being a loser in a war where your side was literally defending the maintenance of a practice of keeping human beings as chattel, being able to kill them and murder them with impunity, raping women and breeding children to keep in captivity, your own kids in captivity, or to be bought and sold as animals. I mean, that is just so gruesome to me and so hateful 
but I don't know that I would want that to be around in my town, and I don't know that I would want to put my kind of integrity on the line to defend the maintenance of one such statue. I do think, generally speaking, I prefer that these things be moved as opposed to destroyed because I think that America should not be allowed to forget right. um, that it lived most of its national history under the disgrace of having chattel slavery as the law of the land. And just erasing it wouldn't do anything to address it. Sure. Um, but whether or not people want to take them down and, rem and move them because it, they seem to be in a, in a place of esteem um, at the center of towns um, and seem to be, you know, statues that are about pride as opposed to memorial, um, I, I have no problem with moving them. Yeah, I think I see a difference between, I mean, this one is at a, is in a grave area where actual soldiers are buried and was part of a reconciliation effort. I think I see that as different than maybe a statue honoring a specific person or like, or you know, we can rename whatever, ships or, you know, planes or th like those things can be We did all the time. So Irina. Uh, <laughs> Um, but I agree with you on yeah, not destroying if they have, the appropriate place for them would be things like museums, museums or even yeah. and, and I think perhaps a, a, a gravesite is also an appropriate place. Um, we talked like we talked yesterday the destruction of that that uh, Robert E. Lee memorial that the Washington Post um, you know wrote about in videotape where it's like do you remember that where it's like it's set up, it's this weird thing that they did. They gave this Robert E. Lee statue to a, a group of artists to like, and they made video of it being like melted down and, and really the face has like fire coming. It makes it far more terrifying and start, starts to, in my view, give the impression that like the literal statue, fine, fine, dislike the man or dislike what he stood for, but is, is starting to make it so that the literal statue is some totem of evil that needs to be destroyed. Like, we're, are we making ourselves more afraid of these things? It's, it was very weird to me. Yeah, that, I don't, I don't I remember, remember that. Like, I take your word for it. Um, look, I was watching, I confess, uh, 90 Day Fiance uh, last night, and, and one of the couples, I don't even know the conceit of the show, but it's I people... <laughs> People who live in different countries, they have to either come to America or go there, sometimes the other way. Uh, and they have 90 days to get married on a fiancé visa. And this one couple, the man had come from Korea and gone someplace in the south to where this woman lived. And uh, she was taking him around the town, and there was a soldier, a, a statue. And he was like, what is that? And she explained to him that it was a Confederate soldier. And he's like, oh, from, like, slavery? <laughs> and she's like, yeah. And, he, and she's like... This is a statue uh, commemorating a pro-slave guy, and she's like, "Yeah." And it was it was an interesting moment because I do think Americans, there are a lot of Americans who are taught that it's just history, and we can, can become kind of inured to the reality that a lot of other countries didn't have this kind of scenario. They didn't have the most people who ever died in the American War happened in a civil war over a question of whether you can own another human being. And I do sometimes think those moments are useful for Americans to kind of reckon with. Maybe it's not the most normal thing in the world to just have a, a surfeit of like monuments to an insurrectionist campaign in defense of slavery all around. But hey, like. Well, let's, okay, let's not. <laughs> I mean, I'm not an expert in Korean history at all, but let's not pretend that America was unique in having, I mean, slavery has existed in every society. Since the chattel slavery of... is relatively unique, it is. Well, and there's a chattel slavery, yes. Yeah, but, okay, that's but a worse kind of slavery. Well, 
the stuff the Romans. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not gonna I'm start sorry. distinguishing between kinds of I, I will because the kind of slavery where you're not multiple it's every generation based on the physiognomics of who you are, but you're captured and there's territory and you breed into the population and you just become over generations normalized. Yeah, that makes a big difference. I mean, armies would rampage big... across Europe and America and Asia and kill all the men and rape all the women and enslave all the children. That's just, it was horrible, but it's just the human experience for the last 2,000 years, 10,000 years. Okay, well, America was one of the last countries to get rid of slavery. It had to fight its bloodiest war over it. And the, the question here is not just whether you had slaves, but whether or not you're a, a country that persists in being proud of it. Well, I, would, I don't think anyone is claiming to persist in being proud of it. Um, but in fact, just to recognize that, as you said, it was a, re a reality, a very unfortunate reality, uh, a early hypocrisy of America's founding documents establishing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and the consent of the governed to have to pick their own um, leadership, and, and not extending that to a significant uh, part of the population, and it taking yes, 50 years and a wildly bloody um, civil war to end. <laughs> to end what I would say slavery in some context, while also um, I, the, the draft comes about as a result of this, which I consider a form of indentured servitude at the very least. If not earliest. pride, what emotion or what kind of sentiment do you associate with people who um, put Confederate flags on their walls or their cars or wherever? What is the sentiment? I, I don't. I, I don't. I wouldn't. Because I feel like they are articulate. Well, you know. Look, people are. It, people do see it as a I'm, I'm as a, a cultural. Boy. I don't have any people <laughs> say it's, it's my culture, and you know, people are proud of their culture. So I do think that you know, I'm not here to cast judgment on anybody. Like you're going to do what you're going to do, but we can be honest about what it is. When I put something on my wall, it's because I like it, because I'm proud of it, because it means something to me, and I think it's worth interrogating. You know what that means. Some people say I look at the Confederate flag and it has nothing to do. I don't think about slavery. Well. That's interesting in and of itself, right? I mean, and it's, well, I think that probably is the case without defense. I mean, they, I mean, we know what people who put up the Confederate flag will say about it. They'll yeah. say they're, they're supporting um, states' rights and individual liberty and opposing um, wars of aggression against them. I mean, that's what they'll say. You can say that's, that's yeah. BS, I but that's what they'll I say. I think that they might sincerely believe that, but I think that I they think should they consider do. that. Um, you know, it means something very different to other people. My great-great—I forget how many greats—grandfather fought in the Civil War on the not having slave side of it, um, and I'm very proud of that. Right. So, which is different strokes for that, different folks. That symbols mean different things to different people. Yeah. More rising right after this. Texas is taking matters at the border into its own hands as the state sees the federal government is failing to maintain the integrity of the southern border. Axios reports that Texas Governor Greg Abbott has signed into law on Monday legislation that authorizes state officials to arrest and also seek the deportation of migrants who have crossed the U.S.-Mexico border without legal authorization. Democrats were quick to criticize the move, tying it to President Donald Trump's recent statements about immigrants. Texas, Texas Congressman Joaquin Castro tweeted 48 hours after Trump accused immigrants of poisoning the blood of our country. Governor Abbott is signing a dangerous new law targeting immigrants and everyone who looks like them. Texas Dems and the Hispanic Caucus members are asking the Justice Department to block this new law. Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson also had this to say. The issue is not just how we respond in the city of Chicago, it's the fact that we have a governor 
a governor, an elected official in the state of Texas that is placing families on buses without shoes, cold, wet, tired, hungry, afraid, traumatized, and then they come to the city of Chicago where we have homelessness, we have mental health clinics that have been shut down and closed, you have people who are seeking employment. The, the governor of Texas needs to take a look in the mirror of the chaos that he is causing for this country. This is not just a Chicago dynamic. He is attacking our country. All right. So I think the main issue here is whether or not this um, new Texas law is preempting federal law. Federal law usually has jurisdiction over immigration issues. There was a similar um, law in Arizona deemed kind of the show me your papers law. People were concerned about the civil liberties and implications of uh, state police officers being able to basically arrest and deport people if they could not prove that they were American. And the Supreme Court mostly rejected that law. And now we have uh, Castro and uh, a number of other electeds pressuring the attorney general to step in and intervene here, unclear whether or not he'll do so. Yeah, I think if Arizona's um, bill was partly unconstitutional, this one seems likely to suffer the same fate. Um, as you said, it's the federal government's responsibility to handle um, border policy, and the Supreme Court has been very clear on that. Um, of course, the frustration, or the reason um, Abbott has done this is frustration that many residents in Texas have, many Republicans have, with how immigration is being handled at the federal level. Um, but of course, that frustration doesn't suddenly magically turn um, an unconstitutional bill constitutional. Um, you know, I, I think uh, I've said it many times, but I, I think. I mean, I don't think Trump's rhetoric on this is helpful. The whole immigration, immigrants are, I mean, everyone, everyone is an immigrant. What he means to say, I suppose, is illegal immigrants, um, trying to distinguish the two categories. And what it, what it seems when you poll people is that people are very against um, people coming into the country illegally, but recognize that immigrants themselves are part of the, uh, part of the lifeblood of our country, not using blood in a, in a pejorative <laughs> sense, and in fact yeah. are needed to be part of our economy and to build houses and to do all other, occupy all sorts of uh, uh, parts of the economy for which we have um, uh, shortages. But what Congress needs to do is make it easier for people to come here legally and safely because people you know, braving the, the harsh heat and smugglers to get into the country and then arriving without any sort of you know, coordinate streaming across rivers without any sort of coordination, um, results in them going through unsafe conditions. It can be a lot for local resources to handle, which has resulted in this bus shipping thing. So the, the chaos of it is is absolutely a failure of federal government and federal um, lawmakers, but one that really needs to be addressed through legislation, frankly. Yeah, it's tough. Um, for one, this imperils our asylum paradigm if you're just carting people out without having given them the legal right to asylum. And the reason that that process is so backed up is because there is not enough funding for enough administrative law ju judges to actually process the overwhelming number of cases because that are happening. Because everybody's claiming asylum, because that's the best way to stay in the country, which is allowed under law. I'm but sorry. That's what I'm saying, why it needs to be, it needs that, to be real. That is, that is what it is. I mean, there are legitimate asylum claims. Either you, like Fetterman used to believe, know, respect what the Statue of Liberty says, and you respect the founding ideals of the country, and you're proud of that aspect of what it means to be an American and how so many 
uh, Americans got here, not all, <laughs> but so many Americans got here, then, you know, it's, it seems hyper hypocritical. And I would much rather a world where we are able to enforce the laws and, and actually meet out those asylum claims when they are justified than a world where we throw out the baby with the bathwater because we refuse to just fund enough um, uh, administrative law ju judges and border agents to actually handle the magnitude of the crisis. Moreover, you point to the danger of crossing illegally into the United States of America, and one has to ask the question what people are running from to make them want to take those kinds of risks, especially with their families and young children. And so that comes back to what our foreign policies are and our sanctions regimes and our wars on drugs and the like that help to create economic and violence conditions in some of these countries that are also really key to driving immigration. Now, you just listed a yeah. lot of my least favorite policies. Yeah, I mean, but you and I, as we talk about frequently, are not reflected politically in either of the two major right-or-left parties. No, no. What do you this is of, one. Yeah, this is one ahead. of the rare issues I think where you and I agree on, and the viewers don't, and a lot of people <laughs> who make your parties do. We're we're now the you know we're the we're both we're, out we're, of step on yeah, this. Yeah, we're the never Trump Republicans on this one. Damn it. Yeah. Well, look. I, I almost think... dropped the F word. That's how that's how <laughs> horrible that was to hear it said. Well, look, no, I take yeah, I take yeah. seriously people's concerns about illegal immigration, the system being overwhelmed. Uh, certainly. Uh, immigrants who come in and commit crimes and violence should be deported. But of course, but the problem of violence in our cities is not primarily an immigration problem. No, they're committing crimes at not, a lower rate than Americans. Not, a, not certainly not a greater rate. It, it, you know, exempting the initial crime of having sure. crossed illegally into the country. Uh, I take crime very seriously. We do have some differences of opinion on that, but it's not. It's not substantially an immigration problem if you look at the statistics. It's, it's yeah, just it's not. just not. So, what do you make then? Um, the New York Post did a write up. Sorry, that's a lie. The Washington Post did a write up on this, um, focusing in on the role that Trump's language is playing here. So he first used that blood uh, argument back in September uh, where he said immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country. And after that first instance, he got a lot of pushback about how that was one of Adolf Hitler's famous talking points and that he should back off. So now that he's used it again um, in New Hampshire recently, people are saying he doesn't have that excuse. He's doing it purposefully. He said, quote, they poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world, they're coming into our country from Africa, from Asia, from all over the world. Isn't a statement like that going to invite crit criticisms that yeah, you are racist? It's also just not. What, what I would say to, to, to MAGA-type people whose pers perspective is that America is being made worse, is besieged by some ideology, progressivism that they don't like. I would just say that the idea that it's pouring in from outside the country is not well-founded. Um, in fact, it c comes from some of our most elite institutions based from our—in his most—I mean, the most progressive—again, I'm speaking to the MAGA perspective, who doesn't like this perspective, not, not to you, who, you know, wants leftist policies. But what I'm saying, they don't—they're not pouring in from outside the country. They are, in fact, homegrown in our own institutions and most, and, and most believed in by the whitest, most affluent people in the country. So the idea that it's, it's, it's a wrong—it's misdirection to say that, like, if we kept the country— to, to more of the native, and of course we're all immigrants, so that's not the right terminology anyway, but most, versus the newer immigrants, immigrants, that's not 
actually accurate at all. In fact, a lot of the immigrants coming in from uh, from uh, Mexico, from South America, have um, have socially conservative views on a lot of issues. They're more religious than than the than the but Robbie, citizenry. That's, but people, when so people it's just read, not they're poisoning the blood, though. I don't know that that's an ideological argument. I mean, Donald Trump could have argued they don't share our values. That's a kind of maybe a dog whistle, but it's a kind of statement that I think that's have what he means by time. that statement. But well, this is the thing: he's now repeatedly choosing to come back to the they're poisoning our blood, sure. what, which seems like a eugenicist argument, which seems I, like an argument about some kind of racial, a somatic purity or superiority as opposed to a cultural one. Fair enough. I can only address the I think more thoughtful version of that argument when I hear it from, you know, Tucker Carlson type people for whom they're talking about it in an ideological sense. I still disagree, as I pointed out. Well, I did a long and well-regarded, um, had a lot of views at very least, radar uh, like a year ago on that Tucker Carlson narrative and the Great Replacement Theory and why it is that that is also a racialized argument. And even people who are inclined to not see it that way and who are fans of Tucker, as the comments are any indica indication, saw it for what it was after I made that explanation in that video. So I think the Republicans are going to have to deal with this. If they want to be able to rely on a Latino voter base, if they want to not have outright, I'm sorry, fascism and people killing people for racial reasons in the streets, I think you're going to have to back away from this kind of language. And someone in the party is going to have to be willing to criticize cribbing language from literal Adolf Hitler to deploy in service of your immigration reform goals. You can want immigration reform. I'm not—there's obviously a crisis afoot at the border. I think at, at, at times the idea of a crisis has been overblown. I don't think it's being overblown right now. And I think there is something to the busing being a distributing of the consequences of those policies all over the, of, of the country that I think it's making a lot of Democrats in the North take the crisis more seriously in a good way, despite the stunt itself being somewhat cruel and using human beings as a pawn. But that's a different thing than talking about people, notably not from Europe, but from Africa, from Asia, from all over the world, poisoning the blood of our country. Yeah, it's, it's totally wrong. Great replacement theory is good. Here's my hot take, because we, we want to bring we want to export the God-fearing, hard-working, socialism-hating people of the southern uh, continents to replace the Harvard establishment that is really the antithetical to—, um, to conservative values. And yet it's the so socialists from Europe that seem to be the only ones that are the good immigrants, or at least who aren't put on Trump's bad list. That's right. That's why that's a mistake. Huge mistake, guys. That does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, Sabrina Salvati will be here to discuss the latest on how young voters are feeling about 2024. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bye-bye. Take care.